0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Cardinal Dash. I'm King Jemison alongside Daniel martinez crams And this week, you can see we got a third guest. Very excited to have RJ Abetia on the show with us this week. He is your go-to stop for everything Stanford Athletics on the bootleg at 247sports.com. So we're going to have a lively show today discussing what's happening on the field, our last regular season episode of Cardinal Dash, and also what's happening off the field. We got early signing day tomorrow and a Stanford recruiting class that might need some help uh, as it closes out this stretch in in a difficult year. But guys, I'm so excited to have both of you today. And first, let's talk about a really happy topic, which is Stanford's three-game win streak and the way the Cardinal have played. They beat Oregon State on Saturday on a late field goal, second consecutive game-winning field goal for Jet Toner against the Beavers. So with this three-game win streak, Stanford is one game out of the Pac-12 North race Obviously, one game flipped, and they would be playing USC for the Pac-12 championship. So, guys, where would Stanford be without the Davis-Mills false positive that sidelined them for the Oregon game and the entire week of practice leading to the
1: Colorado game?
2: I think it's like,
1: pretty... <gasps> no, 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 right. I don't know, know if the old guy was going first or last, so it's okay, Daniel. Whatever. No, go ahead, RJ. I
2: want to hear your point on this. Um,
1: You know, I... I wrote earlier this week. I think I'd be very willing to discuss the possibility of flipping that Colorado result. Um, I think when you look at the margins in that game and you talk about Davis Mills being a week of practice sharp in that game, I don't think it's crazy to say that they could flip. A, what was it? A five point margin? It was thirty one twenty six. Is that what it ended? Something twenty nine, something like that. Anyway. I think it's very reasonable to say that at home, a fully rested Davis flips that. Um, certainly the Oregon game would have been closer. I don't think there's any question about that. It's just a little tough because I just think Stanford's defense was really struggling in Oregon. And um, again, not to quote myself, but to quote myself, you know, we didn't know how good a tackler Davis was back then, so... I don't know if he would have been a defensive candidate to make a contribution. But the point is, I think they score more points. I'm not sure they come over the top and switch the result. But I definitely think you can make that argument for the Colorado game.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Colorado, King and I going into the season, thought there's no chance Stanford loses that game. Obviously, we missed a little bit on that one and about Colorado's projections for the whole season. But I think Davis Mills, healthy that entire week able to practice that entire week. Same thing with Connor Weddington. Them having them back, it's a totally different story. And against Oregon, yeah, you know, I saw that in your article. I thought that was, that was very cheeky of you, saying we didn't know how good Davis could be on defense. But I think also a valid point is they didn't know which pieces worked best on the defense. So I think going back and retrospectively saying, like, oh, this is what works out, have a better shot in that Oregon game. But even with Davis being out, a few of those throws that were missed, this has been referenced by Shaw, that – that just were connection issues between uh Jack West and his receivers. If that's Davis Mills in there, easy to see Stanford up by a score, maybe two scores at halftime.
1: Yeah, that game. Oh, go
0: ahead. Yeah, yard wise was pretty close. I mean, both teams were moving up and down the field at a fairly similar rate. Yes, Oregon was more efficient, and Stanford's really struggled. But when you look at the fact that Stanford not only missed four field goals, but that they had those four field goals to begin with. I think maybe with Davis Mills those red zone trips are a little more efficient and maybe you don't have to settle for Jet Toner's worst day of his life Um, and obviously you punch in two or three of those touchdowns a totally different game if we just look at the Colorado game the way it progressed this really struggled in the first half he looked totally rusty like a guy who hadn't practiced in over a week and then all of a sudden the second half he starts to become the Davis Mills we all know and love and I think a three-point margin, I would easily say that flips if if he had been able to prepare um, as he normally would have for a game week.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you want to put the best shine on the Oregon game, I think if you would have told me that Stanford was going to run for 6.4 yards per carry, not allow a sack or a QB hurry, um, and had Davis Mills, I probably would have told you that they're going to win that game because I didn't expect any of that to happen as it did. So I think it certainly would have been like you're saying, I think the red zone questions are are fair. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just tough. It's very tough. Um, But I will say just on a positive, I think it's been really great for this team to reward itself with wins at the end of some very difficult weeks. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to be trudging through this scenario that they are in on a two, three, four game losing streak right now. And, and you know, not to steer anything, but I, I will say, you know, I think it was the right decision for them to to end it on Saturday.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Ended the Rose Bowl. With yeah, getting to finish getting the finish there, not much better than that. But, yeah, just the amount of confidence that they've been able to build. Obviously, there's some things we'll never know. The running game really showed out in week one, and Stanford's relied on that since then. So maybe there's less of a run game in week one. We, basically, I'm saying we never know what would have happened had Mills played in that game. But we could have easily seen Stanford still win all of these games, and we're much closer to a season. I think a lot of us kind of predicted in the preseason where we thought that Stanford would bounce back this year.
0: Yeah, Daniel, your prediction of 5-1 and one looks a lot more legit after the past three weeks than it did at the beginning of the season. And I would argue that the Stanford we've seen in the past three weeks is much closer to how they should be playing, particularly offensively. I mean, this is, should be a balanced offense, um, and they've been good on the ground and through the air. And I think they're playing like Stanford football. They, they are controlling the clock, and that's, to me, going to be a huge key on Saturday. Um, is whether they can keep Chip Kelly's up-tempo offense off the field in the first place because Bruins are going to score when they get it. And so the the best defense for Stanford would be its offense and how long uh, they can hold the ball over the course of Saturday's game.
2: Yeah, I just want to raise one question. Um, if Stanford does have that one extra win, they're in contention for a higher bowl, maybe even playing in the Pac-12 championship game on Friday with a chance at a New Year's Six Bowl – then do you still think stanford makes a decision to opt out of a bowl game
1: i would the only thing that i could see them opting in for would be a new year's six game i think for the obvious reasons i just think because for all the reasons both for the wallet and for the for the experience you don't walk away from that especially in a season like this but i also you know I have a really strong sense that this team has pretty much emptied the tank at this point, you know, and, and, and even if you just listen to, to coach Shaw today, today, yeah, I can't, I can't even keep track of all these zooms and basketball and what happened today and whatever, but, you know, he talked about this treating this week and being kind of at Santa Barbara, kind of a vacation, kind of spot, like, treating it as kind of a bowl week and trying to maybe find some time for the guys to just have a free time and just have a vacation type atmosphere. Obviously it's a practice week and, and they're going to, they're going to handle their business. But the, the point is I really am not sure how much more they have left in the tank um, at this point. And so as much as we would like to see them in a Pac-12 championship game and in a New Year's Six game, you know, it, it might be working out for the best, at least just from that perspective.
0: RJ, I asked Daniel this last week, but where, where would you power rank Stanford in the Pac-12 right now?
1: That's a great question. Um I would say right now, I don't think you can put them any lower than fourth. Um I don't think you can argue that they are the best team in the PAC 12 because for as shaky as USC has looked, they haven't lost, you know, they've won. They, they handled their business and they didn't have any slip ups. Um, and I think there's a little bit of a gap there for sure. Um, but I have not been impressed with Oregon since they played Stanford. Um, UCLA, I think, is arrow up, but I don't know. It, we'll see. I think it'll be fascinating on Saturday. I think I think the level of play of those two teams are is really closely matched. And kind of it kind of worked out in a in a in a weird way that like that's probably the crossover game that should be happening outside of the of the Pac-12 championship. So I guess I would say I would say top third. I think you could make an argument for number three or number two, and I think we'll have a pretty definitive answer on Saturday.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that I think that this really might be a battle of the second and third best team of the Pac-12 now. Um, and, and that's no disrespect to Colorado. Um, and obviously, both Colorado and Oregon beat Stanford, so it's hard to make that argument. But just the way UCLA and Stanford have, have played to close the season, I think that this is the best possible matchup, as you said. And I'm also happy. I was pointing all along uh, to the fact that if Stanford could play one of its California rivals in the crossover game, that's what should happen. Um, And now Sanford, after losing that 11-game win streak over UCLA, has a chance to get it back on Saturday. Um, But we're going to take kind of a hard pivot off of this season and look at the seasons to come, um, because RJ knows Sanford recruiting better than anybody. So, RJ, tomorrow is early signing day. What should Sanford fans be watching for? uh, uh, What will be the first of, of many eventful recruiting days in this cycle?
1: Well, It's interesting. I would expect, um, as Coach Shaw has said, most of the commitments that are going to sign, I think it would be a story at this point. If anyone amongst the scholarship verbals didn't sign tomorrow, you may have one or two. And there may be some guys who are not committed who end up coming into the fold um, by February. But first thing is, is it's going to be a small class and so there's a couple things to consider there um first off it's it's going to be low numbers and that was to a certain extent by design so whatever that number ends up being tomorrow you know don't be surprised when it's not 25 or anything even remotely close to that i mean right now for scholarship verbals i think we have 14 that we know about officially announced or or publicized. Um, I think that number is going to grow by tomorrow, but we'll see. Um, and so the number is going to be small. And so I, I say that because that's a little bit of a mitigating factor in the ranking. This is going to be the lowest rated recruiting class in the David Shaw era. Um, and it's not really going to be close. Um, the 18 class is currently the lowest rated and they finished in the forties, it might've been number 40 if, I, if I'm if i getting it right. But um, so it's gonna be a low rated class. And part of that is just because of who they're signing. But another part of that is because their numbers are gonna be low and they're kind of intentionally low. And I will say, and again, there's plenty to say that's not great, um, but I will say if there's a year to bring in a low number class, it's probably this year. Because when you factor in junior, Senior and fifth year eligible guys who, right now, we have no real sense. Like, we, I think it's the largest number of guys who you really can't say, oh, this guy's going and this guy's staying. You know, I think when you factor that in, it's not the worst thing in the world to not have a huge influx of guys who you have to have a spot for. The second part of that becomes also you don't know the size of your 22 class right now, you know? And and right now, what you know is there's a very short list of 21 elite guys who are in play, obviously, at this point. It's signing days tomorrow, so, you know, we're not going to get showered with surprise four or five stars. Whereas in the 22 class, the offer board is nothing but four and five stars at this point, and you certainly don't want to find yourself in a position where you don't have a spot for four and five star 22 guys. So that's my best spin. I don't know. How I how did I do? I, I You know, I, I get, um, we'll just say I get some blowback from certain channels uh, for uh, the things that I say, especially about recruiting. So I'm trying to lead off with as much of the good as I can. And by the way, I think there is value in this class. Don't get me wrong. There are some guys who are absolutely worth being excited about.
0: So I wanted to ask both of y'all. I mean, this—you've kind of touched on this, RJ—but 14 hard commits on, according to 24/7Sports.com, only one of those commits is a four-star. So, with that in mind, is is the work that Stanford's done so far in the 2021 class disappointing, or are we going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they have they have done their evaluations and that they're still getting the guys they wanted, even if they're not uh, the highly touted prospects that Stanford's used to signing?
1: Well, I think for the vast majority of the guys who sign tomorrow, I, I think it's I think it's disingenuous, and I think even the guys themselves would not call themselves Stanford's plan A options. Um, I think you can say that about offensive line, um, a couple of, of defensive line guys, not the guys who are signing, but just the guys that they're not going to get. Um, you can make that argument for – the skill positions, Um, but again, the skill positions are very distinct. Stanford was very clear from the jump that they were taking one per position. They wanted one running back. They wanted one wide receiver. They wanted one tight end. So, you know, when you are in that mindset at the start of a cycle, you're going to hang in with the top-notch guys, even when it starts to look like you should probably move on. I think they allowed themselves – to hang in on some guys where I think most felt the players had moved on, but they could afford to because they didn't have to find three or four guys, you know? So um, again, I think overall, this is, it's a small class. It's going to be a low rated class. I think there are some, some quality guys and there is quality talent that we can talk on an individual basis for sure. But I think the reality is, is, the 2021 team is going to be bookended by the two lowest-rated classes in the David Shaw era, and I think that's kind of your jumping-off point when you talk about the future of the program and the future of the team and what things are going to look like next season.
2: Yeah, Daniel, I don't what get, you think? Yeah, I don't want to get anyone in trouble with any of those channels. I don't want to bring up the quarterback stuff, but the thing that's really been sticking out for me is how Stanford recruits California. And obviously, California kid, I'm gonna be biased here, but I'm looking at Cal, which is currently third ranked in the Pac-12 in its recruiting class, and USC, which is second. Cal's bringing in 11 players from California, including two four-stars from California. USC, 10 players from California, 13 four-stars on it's bringing in, and eight of them are from California. So clearly, there are people out there in California, and it just seems like Stanford is lacking in recruiting that local talent, and I wish they would do more, especially outreach in the Bay Area. It just seems like that is something they could tap into if they haven't been.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's I, – I think I would keep the discussion statewide just because it's very rare that you have a cluster of Stanford viable guys in the Bay Area. I think if you extend maybe to like Central California – or like the Sacramento area, you can certainly say to yourself, wow, there were some, there were some options and there were some guys. I mean, uh, Keanu Williams is an Oregon, um, I would assume he's going to be an Oregon signee tomorrow. Uh, He's an Oregon verbal commit who Stanford was in with um, for a long, long time. Um, Prophet Brown is an athlete out of the Sacramento area who Stanford pivoted to as an offer at one point, and he's going to be going to USC. Um, so, and, and yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the percentage of this roster, that's from Southern California and the percentage of this recruiting class that is coming from Southern California, it's kind of jarring. And, you know, I can already hear coach Shaw talking about the fact that they recruit nationally and how in any one year, it's not always going to be that one area. And I think he's right for most of the areas of the country. Southern California is not one of them. That is that is the base of this football team like that it's not it's not up for debate like that is where this team is built it's where its best players come from in the highest percentage i think and so you know yeah i think that that's that's something that definitely stands out about the class i mean the class is always going to be geographically diverse maybe more so than any other team in the country you know but that base is always still going to be California. And the base is still going to be Southern California. And they certainly didn't lock down as many guys as I think they intended or expected to.
0: know Stanford's offers is the hardest to get. That's a, a common refrain we hear coming from Sean's program, but 67 offers thrown out in this cycle so far, I was just scrolling through them on 24 seven sports.com. I mean, for example if you look at the offensive tackle position eight offers and I mean Stanford is ultimately probably going to sign um, the lowest rated of those eight offers so you're also missing at some positions that you expect to be able to recruit at, at an extremely high level but to shed some positivity on this class which guy are each of you most excited about that that we expect to see
1: signed tomorrow go ahead Daniel I should not have gone to Daniel. That was a bad choice. Because I don't think we can hear him. Yeah, he, not only is he not happy to answer, but he's <laughs> muted. i
2: so sorry. RJ, RJ, please go ahead.
1: Um, so the name I'm gonna lead off with is Brendan Barrow. Um, he's a running back out of Florida. Um, there's some film out there on him that you can take a look at. Um, I think he is, is found gold to be honest with you. I mean, again, you cannot say it's by design. I think he might have been the fourth or fifth running back offered in the cycle. But the more you look at his film and as he finished his season and his, his profile got attention, there are eyes that I trust who consider him a top 10 running back in the class. Um, and he's a little bit of a a Bryce. I mean, you hate to say Bryce Love type because... There's nobody like Bryce Love, but he's that guy who kind of runs bigger than his size. He finishes. He's a home run threat. He catches the ball really well out of the backfield. Um, That's a guy you should be legitimately happy about. He's not a consolation prize by any stretch. I think he's a legit guy, and I think he makes a, a rising running back room even better. So I think that's definitely a guy to be excited about.
2: ask RJ of the uncommitted players with offers is there anyone you think could trend towards Stanford
1: so I'm gonna butcher his name even though it's only three letters but the most recent offensive line offer Austin Uke well I guess we'll just go with call him Austin on here because so we don't butcher his name a hundred thousand times but um I I like their chances with him right now um he's another one he was actually a holy cross commit at one point in this cycle kind of blew up. Um uh, has been on him, the local school, um, and they still got the crystal ball picks for him. But those crystal ball picks were made before he picked up. I mean, I think he's up to like 20, 22 power five offers right now. And Stanford's been one of them. And they've got um at least one inside track. Um, their their current offensive line commit, Jack Lehrer, um trains with the same guy, and he knows Austin really, really well. So we know that he's definitely hearing it from a player perspective. So Stanford has guys, and, you know, the other part of it is, of course, when you get to this stage in the cycle, you can put all your attention on one, two, or three guys. You know, so if Stanford wants to put the hard sell on him, uh, they can do it you know, they've, they've got the resources to do it because they've got the bulk of the class in hand. So, um, amongst the guys who are not committed, who I think are still in play, I think that's a, that's a really good, that's a really good shot. They're, they're in it. It's going to take some work. Like I said, some power five schools now are, are really moving in on him, but, um, I, I like their chances. I like their chances there. And again, that's not that's a, that's a highly rated player. That's a guy who's, who's, who's on the ascent. And, um, and, again, with offensive line, much like with the whole class, the intent was always low numbers. So they went into it saying to themselves it was possible they'd only sign three guys. Now, right now they've only got one, um, and Austin would be the second. Um, Drew Kendall is still out there, but it's not looking like that's going Stanford's way right now. We'll see what happens. Um, things can always change. Um, so, you know, if they bring in Lehrer and, and Austin, Uke, that's not bad, especially because the room is in such better shape. Now they have legitimate depth in the offensive line room. So these guys, those two next year are not going to get rushed out onto the field like Walter Rouse and Barrett Miller and Jake Hornibrook had to last season. So, um, yeah, I think there's quality there. I'm not ready to call anybody elite at this point, but they're talented guys and they will be allowed the room to grow into starter level players. And if you get that out of a class, that's what you want.
0: And if there's two positions that based on this year's team, we can really trust Stanford's recruiting evaluation capabilities. It's got to be running back and offensive line Um, because it's not like, for example, Nathaniel Pete was one of the top rated running backs in this class, but I think we see in his talent level that obviously he's sitting behind Austin Jones, but he is a very, very talented running back. And at offensive line, those guys were not universally four or five stars, but you know, from their true freshman season, Rouse and Hornybrook and Barrett Miller and Branson Brack have been able to perform very, very well and, you know, are kind of the backbone of Stanford's nearly elite offensive line. I don't know how the rating services are, are treating it, but I just saw that Drew Dahlman is the highest-rated uh, player in the Pac-12 offensively, according to Pro Football Focus. Um, and Davis Mills right behind him. So that's a pretty great senior duo uh, at center quarterback. Um, but we've just got a few minutes left, so I want to talk a little bit more about beyond just signing day um, and the rest of, of Stanford's offseason. RJ, what's the pitch Stanford's coaches are going to make to all these seniors and, and juniors and even fifth-years who have eligibility remaining have every option to come back, but you know, you just never know what they have planned for their future.
1: Well, I think the pitch, the in-house pitch has to be that when we were whole, you saw what we could do. You know, when they were a complete team, they haven't played anyone who has outclassed them this year. You know, they really, they really haven't. Um, and if you're making an argument about guys extending their careers to come back and be part of something special, I think that's probably the best argument. I think, you know, pending the big names, right, who are currently on this roster with decisions to make, you're not, you're not pie in the sky to say that this team is going to be a contender in the North next year. Um, now it's 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 not a shoo-in you know I think people are kind of forgetting Oregon is actually the youngest team in college football in terms of percent of their roster that's underclass. so you know we saw a less than stellar version of a team those are good players but that's a good roster they're going to be just fine next year so it's not like you're It's not like if you're Stanford, it's just a waltz to a division title if you come back next year. But I do think you can say when they were at their best offensively, they were as good as anybody that they played. And defensively, I think the pitch is really simply anybody who wants playing time and earns it, it's there. Daniel, what do you think? What do
0: you think about the decision that these guys are going to face uh, after a a shortened season leading into one that could be pretty special?
2: I mean, I just think it's having those honest conversations where Stanford doesn't need to worry about getting healthy in the offseason for the first time. This time they can actually say, here's what we need to work on. Here's what we have. It can just be honest. So I think, yeah, you can give the pitch that there could be something really special. Also the pitch that, hey, you've earned your degree then you get to make your decision. That's what you came for. You came here to prepare yourself for the next level. Whatever it is, we're going to support you. It's just being more honest this year because they're not in such a fraught situation.
0: Guys, we've got a couple minutes left. We'll ask each of you, key for Saturday's game, Stanford's bowl game uh, at UCLA in the Rose Bowl.
2: For me, it's it's stopping DTR because last year was a train wreck and it was horrible to watch. DTR absolutely dominated that game, took it over and embarrassed Stanford in its home. And going up against Jack West, there was no chance. So it's got to be starting with stopping DTR.
1: And I'm I'm going to say turnovers. I think that these teams are closely matched enough that the mistakes, the bigger mistakes, are going to be the things that swing it. Um I think if you look at UCLA's game against USC, that kind of was the story. You know, they were in control of that game. And then you give up a touchdown to Drake London, where seemingly all 11 guys had two time, two chances to bring him down and couldn't do it. And on the very next series, you throw the ball for an interception. You know, I think, I think turnovers are going to be a big, big thing. And I think if Stanford... If Stanford plays a clean game, I think they've got a really good shot. But yeah, as Daniel said, like that UCLA offense is not not a pretty thing to to deal with if you're not forcing turnovers. Well, I agree with RJ, and it
0: that really for Stanford. The Cardinal are tops in nation just have two all season. That's zero point four per game. UCLA is 109th nationally at two turnovers per game. So. And what is otherwise a pretty even matchup, that could be the difference. Another thing I'm looking for is can Stanford play at its pace and control the clock as they did against Washington, where the Huskies barely had the ball in the first half, and all of a sudden they found themselves down 24-3. I don't think that Stanford's going to be able to do that to a UCLA offense that can score really fast, but they, once again, the greatest offense defense for Stanford is going to be its offense um, if they can keep Chip Kelly's unit off the field that has just been really good this season. and. Frankly, so is UCLA's defense. I'm excited about this game. I think there's no better way for this season to end. But thanks to RJ abedia for joining us today and go out and follow all his coverage at the bootleg. Really, guys, this is this is the best uh best Stanford coverage around for for all sports. Um and for Daniel Martinez, Crams, and King Jemison. I'm King Jemison and uh this has been a thrill to do this all season. We'll be with you this off season, but looking forward to one more game on Saturday. Go out and follow dashboards.tv um, on all the socials and on YouTube and go out and follow at sports pack 12 for columns by our boy Daniel Martinez-Crams and a number of other talented student sports media and uh, basically everything else, sports Pack 12 a great site for everything West Coast football. And uh, shout out to Tara Vanderveer and her women going tonight for the record. I think that game's going on right now, right guys? Twenty six twelve
2: 12 end of first quarter.
0: That's not surprising. Uh, easiest prediction of the day, but going to be a really cool moment for all of Stanford athletics uh, as, as she becomes the GOAT. And so thanks to both of you for joining us today, and thanks to all of you for listening. Have a great week and go-card.